Hey you, if you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time, Patrick Pentland, Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, and Chris Murphy, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow super fan hosts. I'm Rob. This is Ken. How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. We have some awesome content for you today. That's right, buddy. What were you doing in 1991, by the way? I'm just curious. Let me think about that. In 1991, um... Boy, I feel as though we introduced the Stephen Cook episode the same way, so I'm going to give a different answer this time. I was (laughs) listening to, I was watching Hammerman on Saturday morning cartoons. Oh, that's a good one. Hammerman was the, it was like a three frames per second cartoon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was uh, in uh, grade two or grade one, maybe, and I was probably wearing like a neon Varney shirt with, um, with not matching sweatpants with holes in them. I can relate to that. I think my style was specifically and, and, and exclusively Ocean Pacific wear. Uh, I was in grade six or seven, somewhere in there. I had just seen WrestleMania 7. I was making a, a cassette called TV Tunes where I would tape you know, songs off of TV, like theme songs that I could listen to on repeat, like Hammerman, for example. And I was writing my own Mad Magazine ripoff called Completely Insane. Um, <laughs> but our guest today was uh, in Halifax. He was at the nucleus of the Halifax pop explosion. He is the man who recorded uh, Sloan uh, for the Peppermint EP and Smeared, obviously. Uh, everybody, if you would please welcome to Sloancast, Terry Pult. Sorry, I got to say that again. Uh, uh, with peppermint and, and smeared. Uh, if everybody, uh, blah, 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 peppermint and smeared. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Sloancast, Terry Pulliam. Why don't I just first off say thanks so much for doing this again and start off with how you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm sitting down here next to a lake watching spring happen. Lovely. Yeah, the weather's getting nicer here too in Ontario. How's it for you in uh, Dusseldorf there, Ken? March weatherish. But uh, we're hoping that summer's around the corner. So, Terry, am I am I correct in saying that you're currently in Halifax at, as we speak? I am in Halifax, yeah. But but I mean, I've had, I moved my family out of Halifax a few ten years ago up to uh, the Annapolis Valley, which is kind of like the lush yeah. apple production area of Nova Scotia. Fantastic. Yeah, and that, that's where that's where sound that's where Sound Market Recordings is based out of right now. It is out of Wolfville, which is kind of like a, a little university town, kind of like Athens, Georgia, or something. It's got a lot of stuff going on up there too, and uh, and and we're recording. Although, what you know, with I mean, nobody, no musicians are making any money right now, so there's not a lot of recording going on right now either. So, except home recording, but so that whole thing has changed, you know, so much in terms of back in the day when I for in, in the in the late '80s and stuff, I was doing demos and things like that, recording demos for people. And, and everybody records their own demos now on, on uh, GarageBand or whatever's available, right? Yeah. Now, Terry, you mentioned that you're from Kentucky originally and that your roots in music are actually inextricably tied to your roots in coal mining. Could you maybe elaborate on that for a minute? You may have been seeing some of these wonderful documentaries on on uh, 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 Americana and the development of, of American music, you know, bluegrass and, and the roots of, uh, well, the Appalachian music, the white blues, and then the blues blues, the African, uh, uh, Nova Scotian, African American music. Uh, and uh, a lot of, like the Appalachian Ridge runs, and the coal mines and all that and everything runs right up from Kentucky into Nova Scotia, it's the same 
ridge that's being mined by the miners up here and, and by Scottish and Irish and so on, people just like down there. And then, then it runs on up into Newfoundland, okay. which is, of course, Nova Scotia, or Canada's most eastern province. Right. And I found, it, I found it interesting that here, me, I, I, I was lucky in that I was above the ground hauling the coal instead of below. Right. And I have a connection deep down where I lived. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I'd wander around when we were camping at at, at the state campgrounds, go from one uh, fire bonfire at night and everything, campfire at night, uh, and people be playing banjos and singing and stuff. And there was a whole musical tradition that was very real there. And uh, and so I kind of like saw from the bluegrass state, saw the beginning of so much of that stuff, right? Right. And uh, and then I found, and then later on, it was funny because I became typecast as a grunge producer by people who didn't uh, who were competing with me in in this area and when really i mean i was into all kinds of ethnic musics and Mahler and you know captain beefheart and everything at the time it wasn't just uh loud and noisy guitars which i love because i'm a guitarist and i've got all kinds of loud and noisy guitar things around all the time with me so you know but uh, so uh, now, to take it a little bit further, I, I moved to Toronto in 69 mm-hmm. because of the Vietnam War. I did not want to participate in that in any kind of way. And I actually worked for a while as a counselor. I was only 19. Uh, and I worked for a while uh, at a place called the American Deserters Committee where we were taking care of it. It was funded by my father when he first visited. He said, is this a communist party? funding you guys or what i said no actually it's the united church of canada and uh and and so you know i was a live-in counselor in in toronto on huntley street okay. right below bloor yeah. uh, and uh and and it was a very intense time man you know uh, it was a very a very political time and i was a pretty political guy myself too not a not a hate a hater but definitely uh somebody who uh took it took a took a stand uh, uh, to, for the people instead of uh, large corporations right. and so on. And that continues through, too. I mean, when I ended up starting my studio in Halifax, which I'll just jump ahead one second, I mean, I was I was intentionally trying to start, like, a musician's recording co-op or something okay. like that. I came, when I first moved here from Toronto, I followed a girlfriend down, and uh, I, I was so lucky to fall into Halifax and all these amazing resources for this railroader who liked Bob Dylan and the Beatles and played strum some guitar and, and pretended to write a few songs. I fell into this amazing cauldron of creativity. Hmm. And, and on Argyle Street, you had the Atlantic Filmmakers Co-op. You had uh, you had the uh, Nova Scotia Photo Co-op. Right. You had CBC Radio. And I was working all those things, and basically from my, I worked for a while at uh, at Canadian Pacific in, in Toronto, and so I had some unemployment insurance for a year, nine months or something. Mm. And during those nine months, I just threw myself into learning uh, audio for for film and for uh, stage. I worked at Neptune Theater. Okay, I freelanced. I I wanted to write. I always wanted to write, and so I freelanced and sold a radio play to CBC that was broadcast, that was produced, and so on. Got fourteen hundred dollars for the, for that. That was cool. 
and so it was like hustling every which way, you know, doing photography, doing sound, doing uh, try doing writing, and uh, put together a comedy troupe uh, that ended up uh, with me getting hired with no experience in radio, but just because of my voice and so on, and, and because I was a, I was writing crazy stuff. Mm. Then I ended up getting the job at the radio station in the early uh, in the early eighties and did that for seven years. So, and then, but then the thing is, is I discovered here I am a music lover, and I discovered that radio really wasn't about loving music. It was about making money from broadcasting sure. music. Yeah, and 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 the guys that were really making the money and so on were the sales guys who started off as music enthusiasts and then gradually kind of hardened into uh well you know they had to make money for their family and so on but anyway that became secondary to like selling ads to car dealers and things like that right. you know and so i always and, and so there was very little in halifax the chum group was as, as amazing as it was at the time and important you know uh, with uh mr waters contribution he was the uh, the guy that owned the chum group mm. Uh, a national a national network in Canada. Uh, it it and, and and some of the first rock and roll uh, broadcasters in Canada. Mm. Anyway, uh, they 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 really didn't. It, it was starting to ossify, uh, and and the the jocks by that time, by the uh, the early eighties, no longer could program their own music. Right, right. And so I reacted against that, and 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 I said, you know. Excuse me, but we're, we're 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 making this money from musicians' creativity and their genius and their hard work. Uh, maybe there's some kind of way in which I can help with that a little bit closer instead of like just this far abstract way in radio. And so I put together a con. I started putting together a, a home recording studio because I was a, I played guitar and liked writing things, and I wrote some comedy comedy tunes and stuff like for. For our radio show, we had a comedy radio show. Myself and Doug Barron, who's Hal Harbor, who was actually ended up being in Toronto, being very influential as far as uh, uh, broadcasting on location yeah. uh, from uh, the uh, Queen Street West scene. Right, we've heard we've heard the name pop up on the on the podcast a couple of times. Great buddy Hal of mine, Harbor. yeah, great buddy of mine, and the other guy, he was the other Bob. I was Bob Young, and he was Bob Rich, and we had a comedy album out on vinyl which people can send uh, 15 bucks to me or something. I'll send you a copy of it but uh, because we still have a trove of them left over. But it was actually broadcast, that comedy album, uh, Young and Rich, uh, uh, was the radio show. A show, named, a show named Bob was the radio show, and then a record named Bob was the record. And so uh, we were, we, you know, I was getting into recording, getting into uh, doing uh, recording music. Uh, I had bought a uh, a Fostex reel to reel eight track. Okay. It was a quarter inch tape deck reel to reel machine, and I had actually managed wonder of wonders to use track eight as a sync signal on it, and actually be able to sequence on a Commodore sixty four running in sequence or like syncing to the tape. Right, so right. all of a sudden I was into the world of uh synths and and guitar and and multi-track recording and syncing to the digital stuff too i soon bought a a mac plus an original mac plus and bought uh pro tools before it was even called pro tools it was called sound designer originally okay. uh, and uh it was amazing because you could 
you could transfer uh, your samples over from a Profit 2002 sampler and and see the sample on the screen and edit the loop and all that kind of stuff. The only thing is, is that even for one hit of a snare, like you go ahead and start transferring it over by way of MIDI, which was incredibly slow. Mm. And then you'd go and get a coffee and come back and hopefully the transfer of the snare hit happened by that <laughs> Wow. That's like that. So I, I, I paid for all the R and D for all of your wonderful fucking cell phones and stuff. <laughs> Every step of the way, a that player, a a that recorders, a track vi- yeah. videotape uh, recorders, stuff like that. Oh my God, they were forty two hundred dollars for eight channels and for twenty four tracks. You do the math, you know. And yeah. then they would be snap, they'd be snagging and breaking the tapes and everything. Oh my God. It's been a torturous path and one which I would gladly repeat any time. At what point in time would this have been that you would have dabbled in the initial digital recording technology? Yeah, well, in the mid-80s. Yeah, yeah, MIDI and stuff and everything was 1983. Crazy. That's when, when Roland and the Yamaha and all the big keyboard producers yeah. and synth producers actually got it together and everything to agree on a protocol, if you can imagine it, so that they could all talk, the machine could all talk with each other. Right, and that that brought about Thomas Dolby and everything else. Right, it was a whole new, wonderful, amazing world there. I've, I love that stuff, you know, and New Order and things like that. Sure. Right? No, I was just going to say there's a great clip, and I think it's probably from ninety two, ninety three. It's on YouTube. It's on it's CBC. It's you being interviewed, I believe, uh, and they're talking about Sloan, but obviously they're talking about you sort of garnering some. Uh, I don't want to say cachet or credibility, but you, the spotlight is definitely on Halifax and you obviously as the producer and the, the recording engineer and everything wearing multiple hats. They're asking you about the, you know, the, the new recording equipment that you're able to purchase at this point and sort of maybe lean into that as, as, as more of a full-time thing. So prior to that sort of, shall we say a boom perhaps in 91, 92 there in Halifax, what were those years leading up to that period like? Well, I mean, how, Nova Scotia has always been a musical place, astounding. For such a small population, so many incredible things came out of here. Everything from Hank Snow to Matt Minglewood and, you know, the, the great Scots. I don't know if you know yeah. about them, but they yeah. were a rock band that dressed in kilts and stuff like that. We're actually on the uh, Dick Clark show and stuff, right? But uh, and all kinds of amazing, amazing things because of the kitchen party type of tradition down here of entertaining yourself mm-hmm. right i mean mm-hmm. you know you, you I, I, when i lived in toronto i go uh i'm gonna pass on genesis this time because i'll be around next year anyway and uh you know uh, uh and down here they never made it down here so you'd have you'd have you had to make your own and that's why i think that was part of the ingredient and part of the factors uh why uh, uh why we bred our own scene you know, uh, uh, we always, I mean, Nova Scotia always had bred its own scene as far as the Cape Breton music tradition mm. and in terms of the black church music uh, tradition. There's a big tradition of amazing uh, gospel music down here, mm. which I had a, actually I got a chance to read or, or to record, I mean, uh, in several cases. Uh, and that was an insight into a whole world that I knew nothing about since I was such a unchristian sinner and so on. <laughs> <laughs> they let me in anyway <laughs> well that was nice of them 
so we come to and in in can actually forwarded me you sent us some photos actually yeah uh, one of them uh, one of them I've seen before which is the original here and now flyer mm-hmm. um, which I guess and that logo I recognize too because it eventually ends up I think on the release itself um, but was this something that you'd been doing prior to this was this sort of um, a call to action for musicians perhaps to not only maybe drum up some business for you know rec- the recording studio but also to just maybe help the sort of local scene kind of get people out there inspire people to record that kind of thing yeah was it something I, that had been going on well like i said the original idea was to run this kind of this thing and try and get a a, a co-op going because i was coming out of the filmmakers right. co-op and the photo co-op right. and i was thinking there's nothing for musicians here and uh, uh and so it's you know the thing is is if you're a writer all you need really is a paper and, and a pencil and 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 but if you're trying to make a record suddenly you're talking about a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear mm. with and it's a very tech intensive process only short shy only of making a movie right and so i i approached the musicians union and everything else down here and in fact i sent out a uh, a, a note uh, trying to get people together to every member of the musicians union saying, let's, let's form a, a co-op. Mm. I didn't necessarily want to own the thing. I wanted to make something happen and, and be at the, at the heart of it. But um, nothing happened from that. And so I forget, I know that uh, Stephen Cook, uh, who's an entertainment reporter down here and been a great uh, supporter and, and booster of the local music scene and, and lo- local cultural scene overall, yeah. He uh, uh, he uh, was working. At, he was uh, I, I think he was doing the DJ thing at the university station at CKDU, and then he came and applied at C one hundred. He wanted, to, and I helped him get the gig. Like I helped, and reading it, when he read his audition, I was producing it, okay. and so I was giving him hints and feedback, and he got the job. And so I was friends with Stephen. And and when when this thing didn't happen, as far as I was building up the recording equipment at home, and uh, and I wanted to reach out and try and get something happen because there was so much amazing scenes starting to happen down at Pub Flamingo and stuff like that yeah. at the time. And uh, so, and the only recording studio that was happening in the area was one hundred and forty dollars an hour, and the the little punk scene could not afford that. I was sure. forty an hour. So right. there's the difference, right? right? That's one of the big yeah. reasons why I all of a sudden got the great good luck of being at the center of this is because I was cheap as shit, right? Hmm. And uh, <laughs> you know, that's part of it. And, and then, and then I had to learn everything from you know making all these promises. I had to learn how to use the stuff and everything on on rock bands. But anyway. Um, what was the question? <laughs> well, we were talking about sort of leading up to that initial here and now, uh, you know, the, the call to arms, if you will. Now, you mentioned the Club Flamingo as well. I mean, were you somebody who found yourself at local venues kind of checking out music, kind of trying to keep your finger on the pulse, see who's out there kind of thing? More more just because out of a real honest interest in it, I'd go out and everything with right. buddies and we'd check out what was cool and coming through, you know. Uh, it, yeah. I wasn't necessarily trying to scout things for the studio because – I was still working at uh, at the radio station for some time, and then I, I jumped out. Uh, well, because of my politics and so on, uh, as I mentioned, everything I, I became the president. Of, we unionized the Jump Station. It was the first one in Canada to be unionized okay. at C one hundred. Later on, much music. Everybody felt once we did that, 
that was the beginning of the tsunami that just or the dominoes fell and the chum group and people unionized. And uh, and so from coming from that political point of view, I wanted to be a grassroots organizer for cultural stuff down here. And and so uh, when when Stephen, when Stephen Cook uh, came in with his connection with CKTU, the mm. local uh, college radio thing, then he and I started we, we, we got together with uh, uh, good old Greg Clark, who was the mastermind behind so many like the pub flamingo and the club and, and, and the double deuce and the, and, and, uh, how many more places that he do at that man. If, if, if there is one person that I would tip, tap my, tip my hat to for starting really kind of being a major, may, the major player, as far as the Halifax music scene, it would be Greg Clark. Okay. I don't know if you've interviewed him, Not but yet. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, He's a very understated guy. If you, I, I sent you a link and everything to uh, to that uh, little half hour documentary. Right. Check it out. He, he's interviewed there. So is Stephen Cook and so on too. Cool. And uh, Way Mason's another one that's oh, important. Yeah. Okay. Way Mason is a city councilman now. He's yeah. actually a city hall. But he he started the Halifax Pop Explosion. That's right. And no records. And paid for having some of his people recorded with me. But anyway, to get to that basic thing, we got together with Stephen Cook, myself, a representative from CKDU. Uh, I'm just going to check the liners here. Uh, also, uh, Mike Clattenburg, who from Much East. Mike Clattenburg was the, is the guy behind Trailer Park Boys. That's where he yeah, went. Yeah. So it's all these people like just getting their chops, uh, starting to get their chops together at that time. Peter Rowan, very important name in mm. all of this. Mm. And, and, and he was like, he had Dress to Kill Records up in New Brunswick. Mm. And he, I think, had, through Eric's trip connections and stuff and everything, just got so one way or the other, he became fan's manager or, or Sloan's manager and biggest uh, promoter and so on. And so he was part part of the judges for this for this contest here and now, and we had tons of cassettes come in, okay, from from the local bands, and we ended up choosing twenty two or something like that. And I recorded most of them; some were already recorded, but I recorded like seventy percent of them, right? And it ended up on. You know, here and now with uh, 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 that's Andrew Scott, the drummer in, in Sloan's painting of a dog sure. there. But right. that that thing, that compilation, was that it was instrumental as far as the whole flurry of activity that began at that time. It started exploding, right? And then when Sloan went out on their first cross Canada tour and network records, and everybody started a bidding war for them, then pow, the whole thing really did jump. Then you know. Uh, uh, and uh, and it came out. I mean, I'm, I must say, I'm proud to have been part of one of the people that helped make this whole thing happen, right? And uh, 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 and I'll tell you, once that happened, I didn't have to advertise for seven years. Everybody was lined up <laughs> to want me to get into the studio, right? I'm just looking at the the track list for the Here and Now CD compilation. And yeah. it reads, it's a veritable who's who of the Halifax music scene at that point in time. I mean, we're leading off with Cool Blue Halo, who later yeah. 
became known for too much Kathleen and and, and that album. Yeah. Um, Sloan is the second track. There's Modern World Thing, which were, uh, as I learned later, a, a hip hop duo, um, one of the first kind of hip hop uh, acts to come yeah. out of Halifax, and that scene became large in the '90s and and later. But Leonard Conan, who's always been Andy uh, McDaniel's and all, yeah, that's right. We've got we've got later on in the track list um, Thrush Hermit and then of course Blackpool which was Chris Murphy's second second showing on the track list so it's yeah. a real you know retrospective now but Al um, Talk too Al Talk was in Bluegrass mm. Lawnmower that's oh, yeah. him oh. singing on that oh cool yeah okay. and and uh, uh, you know I, and then I ended up doing a whole album with him too which was right. Arhuli it's called Arhuli it was really fantastic the funny thing about this compilation was that Peter Rowan didn't have much funds. And it first came out as a cassette only. And then right. finally he got right. monies together from Heritage Canada and things like that and, and put it out on a, on a CD. But that was actually, that was actually like almost, it must have been like eight months or something later that this, before the CD came out. It was just okay. cassette only at the beginning. Yeah. When So what was your first encounter with Sloan? Because this would have been... The here and now was June of ninety one, correct? That's right. Yeah, that, it would have been, and that's what I'm talking about because this never came out until ninety two. In fact, it even says here, here and now ninety two, right? Because it took a while for all, for the for Peter to get the funds together, right? Right. But but so I met them when they came in to do this thing, and they were uh, brilliant little snots, and and. <laughs> <laughs> they still are, I mean, right? I, I I loved it. I was into, but the thing is, is you know, I, I I'm not. I was not the kind of producer. I was not some kind of David Foster kind of guy that's going to tell him how to play or what style to go for or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I came from no, noisy things, like I said. I I loved guitar, crazy stuff and everything. And I asked them, wise me up. If you want to get this happening properly, let's just have a listening session. Right. And so. Wow, they brought out they brought out Bleach and they brought out they brought you know Nirvana and they brought out uh, one that just changed my mind forever uh, was uh, Loveless, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. By by uh, Ke- Ke- Kevin Shields and uh, what uh, what's the name of the group? Yeah, my bloody yeah, Valentine. my bloody Valentine. Wow, that was mind blowing. And and in fact, that's what we kind of modeled the mixing and stuff, how, what they wanted sure. to approach uh, the first little EP that they put out uh, 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 when they were just uh, independent still. Yeah. What's that? Where were you showing? That's peppermint. Yeah, man. Peppermint. Yeah. Boy, is that a horrible mix? <laughs> I mean, I, this is how I learned that is so goddamn murky, but you know why It's because they were going my bloody Valentine. I want That's to right. wear bloody Valentine here. I am. And everything. I've got like, one Alesis EQ rack. I've got one compressor <laughs> and a MIDI verb or like a, a, an Alesis MIDI verb. And uh, my my funky, uh, my 16-track Tascam MSR-16. That's a half-inch tape with 16 tracks on it, itty-bitty tracks. That's what but what that was done on. And that's also what uh, Smeared was done on, too, which is why, my God, it's... I, I, uh, I don't know how we managed to get such a good capture of that, but we did. Like, that sounds great still, that record. Yeah, it's amazing. What a great philosophy, too, to kind of give it to the give it back to the band and say, hey, you know, inform me. Like, show show me what you want to sound like, oh, yeah. and we can kind of do our, you know, a, a, 
you know, our best facsimile. Absolutely. See, that's the thing is like, you know, it's like uh, if you're talking, if you've got some solid models like that, you can go, oh, it's that snare sound, not this thing, this other thing. It's like, and, and it's also, it puts me on the same wavelength so that I can serve them properly. I do that with everybody that I record. I want to know what they love and what they're into. And the fastest way to do that is to have a listening session with a couple of beers or something and everything and just have a good time <laughs> listening to music, right? Now, of course, Chris would never do that because he was straight edge at the time. He would drink or <laughs> Well, I was going to say, speaking of like, you know, personalities and sort of things like that, uh, I guess the first time you met them would have been the four of them just slogging their gear. Now, a lot of people might not know this. We're not talking about a studio in the traditional sense in sort of like an industrial warehouse area. This was in your home. Yeah, it was in a housing co-op. Oh. Like I say, I was in the cooperatives, <laughs> right? So this was a small housing co-op called Kabuki Co-op, which I helped start. I was one of the originals. And it was a lovely on, on Agricola Street in funky north end of Halifax before it got gentrified. And, uh, and, and yes, it was up three stories uh, to the bedroom or, and, and, and two uh, to the living room, which is where we put uh, uh, Andrew's drums and so on, because that was the biggest, loveliest room uh, for the drums. They sound great in that room. And, uh, and then, and then we had all, all of the amps like spread out in the different rooms, and we had to wait until people were at work who lived on either side of me or below our apartment. When they were gone, then I could record the loud stuff, right? So that was the only time that we could record, right? Amazing. So they're 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 pulling their heavy amps upstairs and whatnot, yeah. and uh, you're probably getting to chatting with them and whatnot, and, you, and they're bringing out the albums that they, they want to kind of replicate, if you will. Um, now, I knew yeah, Jay so already. Cool. I knew Jay, sorry, I knew Jay already, because he worked okay. such a record nerd and everything, right? So deep, sure. deep dives into <laughs> everybody. He was a collector, right? He worked yeah. at Sam the Record Man down on Barrington, and so I knew him there. Okay. Just as I knew uh, uh, Andy McDaniel from uh, Leonard Cohen. He worked at uh, Bob Switzer's Taz Records, so a legendary guy and a legendary yeah. record store down here. But, That's uh, right. So a lot of a lot of these people, you know, you'd know them if you were truly into music. I mean, I was working part time occasionally at a used record store too, so I knew a lot of these people coming in buying three dollar records and stuff, right? So a somewhat familiar face there with Jay, I guess. Yeah, Jay was a sweetheart too, real nice, easy guy. You know, Chris would be ironic and Andrew would be uh, uh, kind of glowering and dark in the corner and stuff. And, <laughs> and, 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 the, and the thing is, is I understood this. Like I knew, even though I'm saying, Oh yeah, we hung out and listened to music. Actually, we did it like once or something one afternoon. So I could get up to speed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I was 42 years old and I could have been their friggin' high school principal. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't like we were going to bond and hang and hang out down down at Pub Flamingo together. It was these were kids coming in, like, and and I wanted to do the best for them, and and I knew that from what I'd heard that that, that they had a lot of chops going on. It was when I saw them start just whipping out harmonies and ad living stuff and start coming up with uh, neat new lines and 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 actually working with taking my suggestions. I mean, the beginning of smeared. I'm not, not smeared, but the beginning of Underwhelmed is my Ebo. I said, here, Chris, put this on your bass string. Mm-hmm. And they go, that, uh, that was my Ebo. That was my suggestion. And they, so there was a flow back and forth, 
but it was all exploring sound and having sure. fun with it, right? That's it wasn't from me saying, no, really, if you got, if you want this to sell in Cleveland or LA or whatever, which was mind blowing <laughs> because here's another insider fact for you is that both smeared and like the tracking of smeared at my place at sound market and uh, also uh, peppermint. And they were actually some of the same sessions or close to it. They overlapped. And, okay. and, and uh, the total cost uh, uh, from me for that stuff was $1,900. That's incredible. $1,900 wow, is what it cost. And then they took it to Geffen and LA or whatever for mixing. And it cost over 20 grand to mix. Sure. Beard. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's the Canadian share was minuscule. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just shows you the disparity there. Like that's so crazy. Yeah. Looking at some of these pictures here that you sent in, perhaps we could even post these on our social media sure, or something so people can maybe f follow along. We'll credit you, obviously, follow along while they're listening. And uh, there's a great picture here of Chris and Andrew on a couch. Yeah. And uh, it, it looks like the couch is completely the, in the wrong position in the living room. Like, like they've moved everything out of the way to like put the drums in or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually that's <laughs> up in the little TV nook upstairs, right next to the control room. But they were like oh, flaking okay, out. They were flaking out and everything. I like, it was been working hard and, and I forget why he was tired, but he was exhausted that day. Chris was. And once again, <laughs> and Andrew was like, just kind of like, once again, kind of glaring at me for being an old guy, taking pictures of him. <laughs> And there's a great photo. It was a black and white photo of Jay. I guess he must be in a smaller room upstairs. That's the there's control room. There. That's the control room. Oh, I see. All okay, right. cool. Amongst my records and my guitars and stuff there. Okay. Amazing. He's holding an acoustic, although I don't recall hearing any acoustic on either of these uh, albums. But uh, No. That's there's cool the, to see. There's the deleted acoustic on Underwhelmed, right? Oh, there oh we well, go. That was my... That was my... That was... My bad FM. That was the poison from Chum affecting me. I actually put chorus on something. All right. <laughs> well, I was still, underwhelmed. There's a great little photo 90s. here of Patrick. Yeah, it looks yeah. like he's in somebody's bedroom or something. When there's some, some amps on a bed or something. And there's the one there, the last one, obviously, of Patrick. He looks like he's in somebody's bedroom or something. His amps that is on my bedroom. Bed. That's your bedroom. There's a hamper over his shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what, what that what, they had some kind of incredible little amp. It was just we never had big stacks or anything, even mm. though they were big guitar sounds. They were using very small, cheap amps for that. Yeah, it looks like a twin deluxe in that photo or something. That's uh, a Princeton Princeton Reverb sixty five. Oh, okay. There's, there were itty bitty. There was some. Uh, I forget. The, it was something something tone. You know, like uh, it was like that Supra only cheaper. Yeah, that's a bell tone, uh, Taisco bell tone amp from Japan from the '60s. That's the uh, youth amp of Jay Ferguson that he'd actually used on a lot of those sessions back then, and that he says defined his sound for that period. Yeah, man, I've looked all over to get that again. I love the sound from that thing. Actually, yeah. a lot little little stuff. I mean, you know, like start me up and everything is a tiny little Fender Champ and stuff right. like that. Right. You, you, in, in the studio, you use what works, it's not, and, and, and big, gigantic things bleeding into everything else is not necessarily the answer all the time. So what, which of the four guys was the most deliberate in terms of their... I mean, this, this was a band that had only been together since the beginning of 1991, and they're coming into your studio and, and, and really just doing this for the first time as a band professionally. Who was most deliberate in terms of the production process and involving themselves? Or was it, fair, was it a fairly you know, group effort? 
You know, that's the thing. I mean, here you got you got four writers and you got four singers. Mm. And they really did. I, I don't recall. I mean, obviously, Chris is the, is the most outgoing out and stuff mm. and everything, right? And, and he's a showman. He's a, he, and he's, he likes goofing and, 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 and putting himself out there. So, I mean, I, I think that if anybody was doing a little bit more that way, it would have been Chris. But most of them, they all were kind of really cooperating. You know, they were collaborating uh, uh, openly. And, and I mean, that's been a, a part of their, uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm stressing this thing of like artistic cooperation and collaboration. It, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, competition. It's working together. Right. Mm-hmm. And those people mm-hmm. did that all the rest of, the, of their recording career. They've been doing that where they make sure that each one gets their contribution or, or even a whole side of a record stuff. Yeah. Right. So that's part of their philosophy too. It's this cooperative principle and so on. Right? Like, that's is, right. Whether they stayed it like like that in political terms or not, but it certainly fit. I certainly respected what they were doing, and and it certainly has worked for them for twenty something years, thirty years or something. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I to think, think any- it's that long. It's incredible. And if you think, I mean, anybody kind of looking back on old footage of the band, and even if you look at the track list, I mean, the majority of the songs here are written by Chris. Um, uh, on that appears, first album, on that album, on Smeared. Yeah, on Smeared. Yeah. And, and it appears in the beginning, I mean, he was obviously probably the strongest figure outwardly, like you were saying, and, and in terms of song write, songwriting, he's he's got the most songs, obviously, on the release. But, you know, were you were you noticing that? Did it seem like he was sort of the one kind of uh, leading the charge and sort of rallying the troops? Because obviously, as the years would go by, especially in the mid-90s, Patrick would really kind of come into, come into his own with yeah. a lot of their bigger hit singles and whatnot and kind of uh, find his voice, if you will, a little bit more so. Did you well, here's the thing. Maybe the one? Yeah. There's, there's a couple of answers to that. Uh, one is that uh, is that when when you're on your when you're being tested as an engineer to such a degree, you're really concentrating on the technical stuff to a large degree, right? Mm-hmm. There, I, I I must say I I can't even really say that I was so busy with just trying to get good capture of this amazing stuff that. Uh, and I never noticed any kind of uh, a rivalry, or which is very obvious. I mean, or any kind of cold moments when to, uh, uh, reacting to somebody's suggestion or something, which I've seen in other cases. Now I just saw these guys come in, and they kind of like really knew what they wanted to do. That plus there was some experimentation on top, and everybody seemed to be participating kind of equally. Now you have to remember too that then the history later on, Geffen. Uh, was disappointed that they wouldn't go ahead and just have an obvious front man. That's right. And yeah. and and if Chris had, you know, if he had been the the main motivator, he could have gone presented himself like that. But they mm. didn't. In fact, they said, "Screw you," and got off with Geffen because I would do it one degree yeah. Right. Yeah. or another. Right. So I would say uh, to your to your question, I suspect that there wasn't a lot of that because I felt more like there was a free flow of some guys that really knew what they were wanting to do and that it was going down really fast. I mean, look, we did all that stuff for at 40 bucks an hour for $1,900. Mm-hmm. So you, they had to know what they were doing and whip through it fairly quickly. And, th- and then we still had time to experiment and like do some crummy mixes and stuff. Right? 
Yeah, I mean, if you do the math, you're talking about a little over 40 hours. I That's mean, right. So if you're doing it in the in the midst of people going to work and stuff, if you average it out to about eight hours a day, you know, you're talking about a week, a week's time maybe. Well, at, that, at, at most, that's about what it was. It, it, it was only yeah. like, I'd say it, was, it may have been only uh, eight sessions or something, yeah. Wow. And you mentioned the Ebo earlier. Were there any other fun musical tricks that are done? I mean, if we were to, somebody were to listen to the album now, like, you know, we pick out that sound, uh, we, we hear, you know, sleigh bells and what's there to decide, for example. Mm. Um, any other kind of fun recording techniques like that with, with drums, like maybe dampening the drums or anything like that? I made a massive mistake. I'll admit to this. Like, this is something like, uh, uh, like I say, I hadn't been recording that many bands I've been recording like fun stuff for comedy and things like that, right? Uh, uh, and uh, and had done some film sound and and production uh, sound for theater and stuff like that, and a lot of radio commercials and news documentaries and stuff for radio. Hmm. But that was the technical side. That quite different than recording drums, loud, aggressive drums, especially. I like an idiot. I uh, and I found that this out later when they went to. Geffen and the LA feedback was that what the hell he done? He's gated the toms going to tape. You never do that. You you get you do that in live situations so that the uh, 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 you know if you're doing arena rock or something and you don't want everything to bleed into everything else, right. you'll gate the toms and stuff like that. By that I mean that it opens up just for that when the thing is hit and then it slams down into silence again, right? Well, I gated that and I screwed up. Some of it didn't open up for some of the toms, so they actually had to sample it and fly it in in places and stuff, right? Oh, so this is the kind of thing where, where when you all when you're doing all of this stuff, if you got the nerve to go ahead and say, "Look, use me, I'll do it," uh, and then you and then if you get the gig, you hurry and run to the instruction books and the manuals and stuff and figure out how to do it. I mean, so I was really, really working everything from working with everybody because of the popularity of the studio after Sloan that I ended up writing the curriculum for the first uh, recording program uh, east of Montreal at the Nova Scotia Community College, and I taught that for 17 years. Okay. And that's another thing that will get you to hone your craft, too, if you've got, like, 20 students of really keen, aggressive young musicians and everything and, who, and recording enthusiasts. Like, if they want to know and everything exactly what that – what, what a, a hexadecimal is and, and what, what's it, how's it work in MIDI, then you're the guy that's going to have to find out real quick, right? Right. So that, that's one of the things. That, it, it's like learning your craft, you know, whether you're painting or whether you're whatever or, 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 or playing guitar or an instrument or whatever. You, you have to have the nerve to jump in and say, I can do it, and then and then you'll learn through your mistakes uh, and, 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 and finally get better at it. <laughs> so I was, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, I was, didn't have time to, uh, too much uh, to be watching the, inter, the dynamics inter, interplay between the players because I was trying to kick butt on, on just getting the technical capture together. I was just going to say, I mean, traditionally, I mean, I've, I've recorded a couple of things in my time, whatever, but usually you kind of have everybody sort of play along at the same time to kind of get the drums, get the beds, and then from there kind of build it up, you know, bass guitar, singing on top of it. Was yeah. that sort of the general? Yes, yeah. we'd have a scratch yeah. vocal. We'd have a scratch vocal. Mm. You know, uh, just so a guide vocal, so everybody knew where they were. We do the rhythm section, the drums, the bass, and the basic guitar, and then we do foreground elements 
like the uh, lead vocals and and additional vocals, harmonies, and so on, and lead solos or any fo- any foreground guitar as overdubs. And so we did that within the limits of a sixteen track tape recorder. Sure. So awesome. right away, right away, just with the basic rhythm section, you'd be talking about twelve tracks or something of just mono guitar, rhythm guitar, mono bass, and then ten on the drums or something, right? Mm. And then you have, and then, and then you'd have to be bouncing things around, stuff like that. It's all the limitations that you don't have to worry about with now, but because Pro Tools, of course, you can just keep redoing everything and and some half-assed manner and say you'll fix it. Yes. Well, that's my approach to any kind of recording <laughs> that's done in my house. But, um, is is so? I know that Chris had also um, talked about this later on in his career, but uh, approaching sort of bass recording in, in a similar manner to McCartney, in the sense of you know we'll get down we'll get down our basic tracks and lay on the bass as the last element, as opposed to using that as sort of the rhythm. Uh, Chris started doing that, did he? Like uh, because of the, yeah, it's, because he plays a melodic bass. That's right. And, and and so you're you're not just holding down the fundamental and bumping along at a quarter notes or something or anything. You're actually playing a melody. Was this already the case at Sound Market in '91? Oh yeah. Sure? Well, you listen to the stuff and you could you can tell. I can remember him saying at one point though. This is kind of interesting, uh, and I hope they don't mind me just telling tales out of class. But he said, "He said, does this does this sound too uh, too good? I, I want to make it a little bit dumber. Okay, I, I, I don't want to play it too smart and everything. I want this to be." And he was just saying, "I want this to be powerful and not too too overly elaborate, right?" But I mean, they intentionally, you know, they they they, and, and, and there's always a thing. I guess, you know, you're always wanting to serve the song if you're a good player and sure. you're a songwriter. Yeah. Right? Well, this this might be the one record where the band is really going for a sound, as you'd mentioned. I mean, they were coming in with all this grunge and sort of shoegaze, late shoegaze Pixies. stuff. Pixies, Pixies. and, 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 and uh, Violent Femmes. I right. remember playing that for me. I'd never known about that stuff before. You know, so the, the thing is, it's like I, you know, I can talk. I can talk. I don't know how far you want to get into the technical side, but you know, I, I, let's, I let's do it. Yeah, Please. I mean, I had good microphones. I had a simple tape recorder, well, a half inch. Normally, normally for big recording sessions, uh, the the expensive ones, you had a two inch tape, mm. two inch wide, and everything is going to give you better fidelity and so on. Eh, that's, that's why nice. I'm surprised at how how good that Tascam tape recorder was at uh, mm-hmm. MSR 16. I still have it, by the way. Okay. And uh, the thing is, is that anybody who's thinking about recording or, uh, should think this way and invest in one golden channel, one excellent, no excuses made preamp, one excellent mm-hmm. microphone, a large diaphragm condenser and then small diaphragm condenser too. And then, and then uh, 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 whatever else you need, uh, maybe a couple, you know, a, a good compressor, good EQ and stuff like that. And then the rest of it can be like just good functional stuff uh, so that you can get all, all uh, multi-track your rhythm section, which is going to be behind everything mm-hmm. to a degree, right? And, and, then, and, uh, and you can do that with your SM57s and your functional mics like that that are only 140 bucks each or something. And and but then if you've got that golden channel, then you can do 
you can make it work overtime on all the other things that's going to get scrutinized and be put up front. Right. So you could do it much cheaper that way and, and as a home recordist or as a budget recordist uh, right. uh, to, to do it that way, right? Right. Gotcha. So, yeah. So, I mean, I've I bought, I've, I've basically, over all those years, you know, that's a, that's a funny thing about this as far as, like, anybody into this, into recording is going to be investing in a lot of gear and you'll go through it and get to know it and then, like, a guitarist will have, you know, and their, their length of their career will have a hundred guitars. They won't own necessarily a hundred guitars, but they'll have experienced and then traded it for another one and stuff like that. That's so right. you yeah. build things up. And the same thing with with uh, my gear. Uh, I've sold a lot of it, but what I've kept is like primo, right? It's the best stuff and everything. I, I, there's no excuses made because if you're a commercial studio, they people are going to expect to see the really good stuff, right? They're gonna, That's right. They're going to expect to see high-end preamps and stuff like that. Right. So when Sloan was recording Peppermint and Smeared at your place in 91, 92, were they using any of your gear or did they just bring their own stuff? I had, I had a good, I had a, a really good uh, Strat, uh, which I think may have uh, been used a little bit. They borrowed uh, some stuff a few years later from me, a keyboard that I had. I forget what it was now, but anyway, uh, no, mainly they came in with their own stuff. Okay. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you now this long, this much, you know, later, I can't really recall what they were using, but you should be able to see it in some of the photographs from those sessions. Yeah. Well, like like I said, there's a a picture of Patrick running a Mustang through a Princeton um there's a picture of jay as you mentioned in the control room and i think that's the, the white strat that you mentioned uh right behind him and there appears to be a base uh I'm oh, sure oh funky old that. kramer base my that could be kramer yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and that that strat is what worth quite a bit of money now that was actually an inexpensive japanese made one from 83 but now oh, yeah. there's a lot of cachet to those because the Japanese at that point had just started doing it for Fender and, right. and, uh, and they wanted to make a point and those guitars are beautiful. Sure. I still have, I still have that white strap. Okay. My, my, my tip of the hat to, towards Mr. Hendricks, of course. Yeah. And they, I mean, they were coming in with, uh, with gear that they'd got out of pawn shops and wherever else. And I guess the Mustang was still sort of, that was the guitar of the time, right? Yeah. The guitar of the grunge sound. We, we talked to Patrick a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, um, about uh, and he he went into depth about the smeared days, and he'd also mentioned that he hates Mustangs. Like he he dislikes the fact that there are these weird pickup switches that you can yeah. accidentally switch off if you're on. Well, it's like the Jazz Masters too. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm not sure where I was getting at with that thought. Um, no, man. No, that's a, that's the kind of stuff and everything that the players and the studio people would be dealing with all the time. You know, like we we, we deal with a lot of stuff and the vagaries and the, their strengths and their weaknesses. And actually, uh, uh, I do I do remember uh, setting up intonation on their guitars. It's like okay. young young people playing and everything. A lot of times they they just uh, like they don't realize that you got to set up the guitars sure. properly so it plays true all the way up the neck, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I can remember that's the first thing I do for so many punk bands that came through my studio. 
is like sit down and go, okay, have a coffee or something because I'm getting out the tuner and I and my little wrench here, and my yeah. X wrench, and I'm going to yeah. set up this thing so it plays in tune, right? So right yeah. away, they that was a free service that they <laughs> that meant a lot to the recording, right? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Not everybody, not everybody had a guitar tech back in those days. No, absolutely not. Especially well, you know, somebody uh, just getting started like that, right? Yeah, that's right. It was exciting times, and it, and it ended up like all kinds of people following in their wake, right? I mean, uh, the, the whole sub pop contingent and everything that happened, like Jail and Eric's Trip and Leonard Cohen and Boobie Skull. Boobie Skull were the great unsigned Alice and Out hits band and everything. Oh my God, yeah. they were amazing. There was about there was people. A, uh, agents for record labels were trying to steal her out of the band. She refused to do it because she had the she was she had high ethics. She wasn't going to do that, right? Right. And uh, Plum Tree, uh, they ended up. I mean, what a surprise! Later on, or thing that they became like uh, the, this, like amazing little icons as far as Scott, Scott Pilgrim uh, versus yeah, the world totally. the connection, right? And they were so innocent and sweet and everything, and and. Uh, and just getting started. I mean, that's a case where really they were thrust onto the international stage and everything before they were re- really ready for it. Uh, but uh, there was a charm and a, naive, a naivete there that was uh, really touching. Eh? If you know yeah, Plumtree's totally. work, it's really quite sweet. Yeah. And then there are Cool Blue Halo. I ended up working with them. I worked with uh, uh, so many people a- after that time, cinnamon toast record people. A lot of the people who uh, sure. got, got were, were on cinnamon toast. <coughs> Colin, I don't know if you talked to Colin McKenzie before, but and then Al Tuck, uh, one of the best uh, songwriters down here, and he has a deep knowledge of where he comes from as far as the singer songwriter uh, thing and the Dylan stuff and and the the uh, the Smithsonian collection with that wonderful thing that everybody talks about as far as all the old timey music and the singles, the, 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 what you call it Smith collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, he, he's a amazing songwriter and I, and I, 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 I was very, very happy to work with him on our Huli. And, uh, and, and like I say, you know, once, once Sloan took off for that period from 92 to 95, uh, I could, uh, there was no time free and everything. Like I, I was working weekends and everything, right. You know, and discovering all, all this amazing new talent. Uh, once music kind of like the, the taste changed from, uh, from the nir- post Nirvana guitar stuff, uh, to uh, boy groups and things, right. Backstreet boys and all that. Then that was over uh, as mm-hmm. far as the popular thing, right? It, it became a yeah. back corporate again, basically, right? And not independent, but like corporate again too, right? Yeah. Well, you mentioned it a second ago. I was I was actually really curious to hear what your perspective was on. I mean, you obviously you record Sloan. Uh, you know, Peppermint EP comes out. You know, they're being courted by the record label, like you said, DGC Network. Everybody's kind of vying. Yeah, they sign with DGC. And how how aware were you of, of of sort of the explosion going on there? Because obviously, at some point, you know, they're all over much music. They're the next big thing. Halifax completely. Explodes. I was getting interviewed like I was some kind of wizard. <laughs> yeah, when I was just well, basically trying, yeah. I was just basically trying to keep it together and make sure that I got stuff. And then I learned, right? But I mean, that first stop, my God, I lucked out. I lucked out that I had a couple of good mics. Otherwise, it might not have happened. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, the, so the album comes out, and I mean, at what point does your phone just start ringing off the hook? Like, basically, as soon as like the Underwhelm video comes out, essentially. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there was such a buzz. Uh, I mean, and and the thing is, is that it took a while for Sloan as a band to take themselves seriously. I think you've probably heard stories from people saying that they could just slouch through some shows, right? That they would just see it as, as, as with an ironic distance and not really even try that hard. When they got out on the road uh, and they were working every other night, all cry, and they had to convince somebody besides Haligonians, right? Uh, then they really got their shit together. And what, by the time they came back and played the marquee or whatever and everything, uh, uh, when they got back. They were really a band by then, and they were working hard, and they were putting on really good live shows. But before that, it was kind of like art college guys being droll about the whole thing, right? <laughs> sure. Because you would have recorded them as well after the fact. I mean, as I recall, there's a One Professional Care demo out there or something. that I would, yeah. Yeah, would well, have recorded in 93. Yeah, they came back, and they uh, they demoed – the tunes for uh, the second album for the second album right, for twice my studio. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So I have some of those too. This was kind of leading into my next question yeah. because we have been we've been coming we've been coming with a concept for an episode where we sort of retell history. What would have happened if the second album was smeared part two, essentially? You know. Yeah. Right. I think arguably DGC would have wanted that, and they obviously fought against that to kind of they have did. a little more artistic integrity, that kind of thing. Maybe to have a little more of a, a shelf life. They want to create something that maybe will be a little more longer lasting. You know. Yeah. And and funny, funny, and funny enough when you say it about it. I mean, you listen to smeared now, considering the music that was put out at the time even some of the bigger albums, to me, it still sounds timeless, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, and that's kudos to you as an engineer and producer and to them as performers and writers. I mean, that album does not sound like it existed in 1992, the early nineties. That's right. It's, it's pretty peerless as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, man. I, I was, I'm so proud to have been part of that. And that's the thing about it. I mean, and it's not it's like for any recording people, like, it could be a kid's group. It could be Raffi coming in or something, you know, it, you got to give it your hundred percent because, uh, later on that, that people, those people might take off and, and your work is going to be judged and it better be good. And when I say Raffi, I mean, Dan Lanois recorded Raffi in his house right. studio. Yeah. Right? right. And, and I did, uh, I, I ended up having kids and everything afterwards. And I heard, uh, an album that I did for uh, a, a Razzmatazz band, uh, Sandy Greenberg and her husband. Uh, and it sounded fantastic still. Yeah. And, and mm. But it was just like music supposedly for eight-year-olds, or for four-year-olds, right? Mm. And <laughs> uh, and I listened to it, and I went, God damn, that, that's still standing up okay. you know. So uh, I would say never underestimate or, or never give less than your 100% and everything, regardless of the project. Yeah. Yeah. There is a timeless element and maybe it's just a magical, all of those elements kind of coming together, you know? Yeah. And so w when we're talking about this sort of speculative second album, mm. you know, I, I assume you would have eventually heard the record that they were demoing with you that they yeah. did in New York and whatnot. Yeah. Um, how would you what, contrast, did they, they went to, Didn't they go to Lenny Kravitz's studio in That's New Jersey or something, man? Oh, man, I envied that. that. I wanted to go with them, the bastards. They didn't take me. <laughs> 
But I mean, from from the demos that you would have heard previous to them recording that, and maybe the final product, would you say there was a maybe dis, a bit of a disparity there? Were they kind of pushing? Were they leaning towards that smeared sound, or were they already kind of maybe embracing something a little more? Um, well, they did pen pals at my place, and that was right. they they wrote that from looking at the letters to Nirvana when they were on tour with Nirvana for right. fan yep. letters, right? So yeah. there was still some of that there. That was still pen pals feels still kind of smeared. It could have been unsmeared. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. But there were other things like some of like, there was a long extended, wasn't there a long extended tune and everything from Andrew on it and everything, right? And there was some other, like they were starting to go in other places where, 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 and, and I think, and that was the reason why they recorded it as demos with me is that they, I think they wanted to sit back and think about it after they had those things recorded and how they would approach right. those two. So they were first snapshots, first Polaroids or whatever and everything of something in process, right? Yeah. Interesting. So they've actually spoken recently about a potential smeared box set or some sort of collection, like an anthology collection. Neat. Um, I've got is stuff. It, is it, I still got stuff. I still got. I was stuff. gonna say. I mean, if, if if that stuff's out there for the people listening, perhaps we're talking about something that we may hear at some point. Things that haven't. If been they heard if they would do that, one of the things I taught my students was that it's unethical to release anything without the artist's consent. Right. <laughs> so I would never release that. I have the entire. I recorded Eric's trip's Peter album, right, at, at my studio, but they determined. Rick and so on and everything determined that it was too clean and too professional sounding. And they wanted to have the funky little uh, uh, four track tape recorder in the basement right. kind of thing. They were right. still into that, right? <laughs> the lo-fi. Wow. Which was very cool. I mean, because of what that's kind of like is that was kind of, it took me a while to understand because I was kind of professionally hurt to a degree mm-hmm. because I wanted that to come out because it sounded fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and the songs were all there and the performances were great. And they sound really uh, clean and not, well, I mean, dirty where the, where the guitar should be dirty and stuff, but professionally captured, right? Mm. And I have that. I have a digital mixes of all that stuff if Rick ever wanted to release that. I can hear people's minds melting right now just hearing about that, like a, like a really well-produced Peter, like, holy smokes. Yeah, well, well this is frightening. Now I'm going to have to fucking get security service for my home. <laughs> See, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much off the top of my head here, right? Oh, yeah. He's a deserter or something, and he's got all this great stuff. We, he deserves to be fucking punished. We'll take, we take zero responsibility. Yeah, right. Yeah, zero responsibility on us. Um, anyway, but yeah, but getting back to the recording, so obviously they recorded some stuff prior to Twice Removed with you. That's amazing. I yeah. remember hearing back, and I can't remember where I heard this now, but there was a story about alternate takes and there's a song on the record that i love median strip yeah there's apparently a, a version there's apparently a version out there where andrew is actually singing the lead and he's got his sort of low down just like similar to the way he sings his verses in 500 up um a version of median strip where he just does the vocals the whole way through instead of chris right um is that something kind of that remember you, that man i do kind of remember yeah like that. like maybe they were Toying with options in terms of who's singing yeah, what. Yeah, he, he Chris sings is... in a lower register, right? It was more of a husky lower register that he mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do back... remember that, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's back... false memories in me. I don't know. Maybe this is false <laughs> memory syndrome. 
I'm certainly not meaning to do that, but I mean, obviously, in the in the early days, Chris would have been writing the lion's share of the of the material. But I think even then, he maybe wanted to have everybody represented, you know. So mm-hmm. perhaps there was some, you know, try out this person singing this song and so on. So yeah. Um, but anyway, I was just curious about that. He, if may, have, he any... may have been like making it so trying to be democratic about it and not having everything just automatically go to him for lead vocals and stuff, like, even mm-hmm. though he wrote it. Yeah, right? cool. I think there was cool. that, like I say, there was that collaborative spirit there. And, and so I could easily yeah. see that happening, you know, like, well, well, let's give Andrew a shot at it and let's see if it works and then go from there. Yeah. Right. I mean, 500 up is a Andrew song and he's only got like two lines in it. You yeah. Know, that's, that's the sort of nature of the beast, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're right at this point in time, they're writing for each other. Nowadays, they really write for themselves. Well, he was singing in um, that low register on that too, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so at what point did we were talking about sound market in the cooperative on Agricola? At what point did sound market move into its own space? Well, when I was recording this stuff, uh, recording the here and now stuff, my partner at the time was very forbearing. Were very kind to me as far as having all these people marching through the house and everything, and and. And at one point, like, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, it was crazy. Like there was a, there was a band, what were they called? They had a, a song called Bacon and Egg Bicycle. And, and they were absurdist and data, data kind of thing. Weasel Face Judge. And, and Danny, the lead singer from that band, uh, I had some like uh, beans and wieners or something happening down on the stove and we were going to just eat something simple and everything because I was working. And then my wife turned around and said, the food's gone and everything. And Danny eating the stuff and everything while we were working upstairs and everything. He just mm-hmm. got, helped himself and ate all the food and everything. Right. So anyway, that's just one little tiny thing. There were things, uh, 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 other things. Anyway, she was very kind until finally she said, well, it seems to be working now. Maybe you might want to get out, go out and find a real space. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I, I got this funky old place on Gottingen Street, ne- next to Buckley's Music, and and next to uh, Herb the Pawnbroker on the other side. It's now some kind of uh, French charcuterie uh, place, all all kind of uh, yuppie kind of joint. But it was very funky when I got it for the opening uh, night party. Uh, I I got a, a garbage can and 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 uh, and and then. Uh, and then put over a plastic garbage bag and then put ice in it and stuff. And then tried to make that a feature of where the drinks were all in it and everything, the beers and the, and the coolers and stuff, because water was coming through the roof of the ceiling. And, and then I had that coming into the garbage can to make that like a kind of a feature of the studio. Right. But, but I mean, the, the roof was actually leaking and stuff at, at, on the Gottage street place. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and so it was, it was kind of, it was kind of a funky place, but boy, we, we really, we constructed the additional walls and the booths and stuff like that. And that was the first real construction of, of, of a sound market. And then Buckley's music moved up to, uh, to Quinpool and they wanted me to come on up and they built me a custom studio to my, to my spec. It must've cost it was in their basement and it must have cost uh, uh, 80 grand or something to do. And they were only still only charging me 500 bucks a month and everything as uh, I had been paid on Gottage and street. And I found out later on that the reason why was that 
uh, that basically uh, uh, the fellow who owned Buckley's at the time, uh, very nice people, Ken Foote. I had an angel investor I knew nothing of, but she apparently was uh, an heiress to uh, her father was like a, a big uppity in the, uh, the a Canadian aluminum company or some kind of thing like that. Right. So she had a lot of money. And so she went ahead and did this because Ken wanted to have me up there. And so the amazing thing happened. What happens is that if you're if you try and be ethical and you treat people well, it gets around. And uh, and then you and then people start giving you things and stuff. I mean, I had because of my notoriety and so on uh, or lack thereof that I was an okay guy and stuff and a fairly high profile at the time. I had this uh, retiring brain surgeon or something in, in a ritzy part of town just call me up out of nowhere and give me a 1955 record lathe a whole cutting thing with the whole rack of the tube gear and everything else that he brought up from new jersey uh to, to and it was in his basement and he was clearing things out right so i could cut dub plates for people and everything i was actually cutting cutting shellac masters and stuff and everything down there right holy smokes yeah and, and in fact people were asking what's the most recent terry now that you've got this thing what's the most recent high-tech gear to have you bought and everything and i said well a fire extinguisher because this shit will flame up in no time right <laughs> <laughs> it was an old school uh, uh that was yeah it wasn't digital that was analog the fire extinguisher <laughs> That's great. I was going to ask about this too. I was just thinking about this. There's a great interview with the guys in 99. They had an album called Between the Bridges, which for everybody knows, yeah. uh, you know, has has to do with Halifax and uh, the two bridges and whatnot. And it's sort of the story of the band a little bit. And uh, they're doing an interview on Much East with, I think it's Patrick, and he's down by Gus's pub. And the mm-hmm. lady who's there comes out and they're like, oh, we've always wanted to know what is Gus's, who, who is Gus's pub named after? And she goes, oh, it's a little dog down the street. <laughs> No, really? They named that after yeah, our dog, the... after my dog? Well, I was going to ask you about that. Well, it's, I, it, <laughs> it's, it's minutiae. It's strange stuff that I've never heard of. But uh, I did have a, a, a dog and everything called Mr. Gus. I think that that was, uh, that was the Panagiotakis family. And uh, and I think that maybe dad was was Gus. I'm not sure. Right. But right. but that's a that's a sweet <laughs> connection, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, like I, I, if we ever get a historical marker on on uh, a brass plate and everything on on the Kabuki Housing Co-op, because this is where Sloan's stuff was recorded, I hope that they put on, on some kind of little footnote about Gus and my dog. <laughs> yeah, it's so sweet, and and I don't know maybe in on the show she was maybe being a little coy or something, but she so they were straight up ask her like you know who's it named after? She's like, oh, it's a little dog down the street, and I think they say he in the show popular. that yeah, I mean where the where you were recording would have probably been a stone's throw from Gus's pub, right? Just totally. right around that area. It was a half block. Yeah, yeah, so right in that area, really, really cool. I was I was I was on the internet the other day. I was on the internet. What a great segue! Uh, and I was uh, there was an awesome website where I think it's called like interacting with the album or something. And they've got Zeppelin and the Beatles and a lot of these classic albums. Oh, I'll have to check that take, out. I'll send it to you. They've taken these original albums and you can go in and they've got like a little mixing board and you can turn up the bass. Oh yeah. And turn up the drums and you can solo things. Yes. You know, uh, with some of these classic songs and, and for, for an album like smeared and then the recording session and whatnot, uh, apart from the fact that the songs are so well written, 
the way that it's recorded and the way that it sounds is such a mm. character and it's so important to how I think successful it was, obviously. So, you know, I, I had the idea just now as we were talking about it, like, wouldn't it be so cool if there was like, you know, cause smeared, especially with the, from the discography of Sloan, it's probably the album that is the most unique sounding and the one that I would love to take apart the most. You yeah. know what I mean? Like just what are the, what is happening in all those guitar layers and stuff? Yeah. So mm-hmm. hearing that you've got these unheard tracks and stuff and, well, I don't uh, have. I just thought maybe if they, I don't have too much from Smeared. They took the. They took. They bought the, the. They bought everything. You know the tapes and everything, and so they took those with right. them. And in fact, they had yeah. a hell of a time finding in, in L.A. They had a hell of a time finding a sixteen-track tape recorder the same format, so that they could transfer that all because all of that stuff was transferred to twenty-four so. track when they got there because the mixer just did not want to deal with this dinky little thing Mm. right (laughs) is there is there one final if you want to leave our listeners with sort of one final highlight from your perspective because from what i'm hearing this was an album that didn't just you know define sloan in terms of this is their kickoff and that you know it, it it was their launch pad to international uh to an international major uh but it was very much sort of you also dipping your toes into the water of the grunge in quotes scene and of, you know, I'm, I want to record rock music with rock bands. What was your personal highlight? If you could choose one from this whole experience around peppermint here and now and smeared. I think it was the time it was, it was several different things. I wanted to do something new that challenged me uh, as far as getting out of radio and 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 commercial uh, broadcasting and and do something that uh, gave back to the musical community and i was really so happy that it could happen in such a big way for these few bands down here at that time right and and to have been part of just like you know the way i mean like people say what is a producer anyway well, the first thing that, if anything else, is that you're the first audience for amazing new stuff. Hmm. So awesome. I, the, the most amazing thing for me uh, was, um, I mean, a lot of the work that you do is like just technical stuff, you know. You might not be into the, the country tune or whatever, but you're, get, you're honing your craft. And then a project comes along and you're just like smacked, you're, you're gobsmacked and everything. And you're just going like, wow, I am so lucky to be in this room with these people experiencing this first. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's happened so many times. And I must say, you never know what the commercial thing is going to be. Cause I've made so many records that have ended up being, uh, CDs and stuff that have ended up being drink coasters, but there's incredible music on them, you know, mm-hmm. but, but they're just drink coasters because they never had money behind it to make the money. Right. Cause they, unfortunately, whatever you're doing, unfortunately for the most, most time, it, it's just rare times when something uh, uh, you're there at a special time, uh, a nexus of, of uh, a convergence of different influences happen and i happen to be at one of them that's okay. astounding and i uh, i've always been thankful for that and i'm always looking for the next one because i mean it's a rush and a half you know that's right well we're we're very grateful for 
the fact that the stars aligned perfectly and that the end result was just this fantastic catalog of early Sloan music. So and we're very thankful for having you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for for joining us for this conversation. Hey, We've got it's an some, honor. You guys are great. great. I love your enthusiasm and your and the research and, and your love, obvious love for the music. So thanks a lot. Thanks to you both. All right, Ken, how was that? Terry Pulliam, how cool was that? That was fantastic. And I just want to make the note that, you know, you guys know that it's the 30th anniversary of this band. And mm. we're looking to delve into topics surrounding the years 1991 and 92 over the next few episodes. So if you were tickled by this interview with Terry, then be sure to tune in for more coming as soon as we can get it produced. That's a good point, Ken. We got some great guests coming up at some great chat uh, coming up uh, about the 30th anniversary. And obviously we're talking about Pretty Together being 20 years old and Double Cross next week is going to be 10 years old, which is just mind blowing. So we'll be, I'm sure, chatting about that one as well. Uh, Aaron Pinto, if you're listening, uh, I hope you're taking my calls. All right. Anyway, uh, but it was so great to talk to Terry today. And I've been, you know, I've been saying, I've been seeing his name on the back of some of my favorite albums for years. It was such a pleasure to put a face to the name and to hear his voice. Um, So we hope that you listener enjoyed it as well. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, all the usual stuff that we say at the end of the show here, you got to check out the Murder Records podcast and go to Murder Records HQ on Insta and Sloan Music. Obviously, got to show the love for the greatest band of all time and uh, follow the guys individually. Obviously, Patrick's got his Patreon and uh, Chris has got the Do Tons album and Andrew's always selling paint. Uh, paintings on his instagram so check that out as well Um, but once again thank you so much for listening and uh, we will see you next time on sloan cast keep sloaning everybody bye-bye